Thank you, Brother Wayne. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy, for those of you who have been around over the last month or so, we've been looking at different judges from the book of Judges, but we, we looked at all the major figures I wanted to look at. This morning, we're changing gears, and God willing, we'll spend about six weeks together making our way through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I read that recently in my daily Bible reading, and it very much spoke to me, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of really good things here in this part of God's Word that uh, we could stand to benefit from. We live in a day where communication is easier than it's ever been. Easier, by far easier than it's ever been. Uh, long gone are the days where you had to send a letter somewhere to communicate. Well, in many ways, gone are, or leaving us are the days where you make a phone call. I mean, if you need something, you just shoot somebody a text message or uh, send them a message on Facebook or uh, I guess you could send them an email. There's so many ways to communicate. But imagine with me if you had a very, very special group of people right, that you had lived with and lived among, that you had poured your life into for a long period of time, and then you were going away, and you couldn't check in on them and see how they were doing online. You couldn't send them a text message. Uh, you, you couldn't even call them on the phone. There was no way to communicate other than if you were to write a letter, put that letter in the hands of someone that you trusted, and then they travel for many, many days and weeks to get there, hopefully making it and successfully handing your letter to them. If communication were that difficult, you'd probably make a really, really strong effort to communicate exactly what you wanted. Well, that's the type of scenario that shapes our New Testament, right? These were letters that were so incredibly important to their human authors, guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have in the book of First Timothy. First Timothy is different from a lot of the letters in the New Testament because it's not a letter to a church so much as it is a letter to a person at a church. Timothy. Timothy was the Apostle Paul's son in the faith. He was a protege. Paul encountered him on one of his many missionary journeys, was clearly impressed by him, and then he became a, an apprentice of sorts to the Apostle Paul. Paul took him wherever he went, served, taught him, gave him opportunities. And so when there was a chance now for Paul to leave and further his mission, he said, I need you, Timothy, to stay here at this particular church and make sure they do okay. And so that's the situation. Timothy's the pastor of a church, and he's there under the authority of the Apostle Paul. Paul leaves, and he hears things aren't just going great at the church that he loves so much. And so he writes this letter, this very important letter. The Apostle Paul is by now a 30-year seasoned veteran in the faith. He's been through the school of the Holy Spirit. He's been through the academy of suffering. He has gleaned the wisdom that only experience and years on the job can give to someone. And he's sharing that with young Timothy. And not just to make Timothy's life a little easier, but ultimately to help the church. Okay, So that's the background that gives us the book of 1 Timothy. I want to share with you this morning a sermon that I've titled, Getting It Right. We want to make sure we get Christianity right. 
what we believe, how we practice our faith, how our worship services are shaped, what we put in them, what we leave out of them, how we lead our personal lives, how we understand authority structures in the church. We want to make sure not just that we go along to get along. We want to make sure we get these things right. And getting it right really is one of the main themes, maybe the predominant theme in all the book of 1 Timothy, getting it right. And we see that from the very outset. So what I want to do is I want to read to you the first seven verses here in uh, 1 Timothy. We'll take our preaching from verses 3 to 7, but just to give you the flavor of an introduction, we'll begin in verse number 1. Why don't you look there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. God's Word says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now notice as we get to verse number three, this theme of getting it right really starts to come into the foreground of the letter. Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Right? He wants to get it right. Stop the people in the church who are not getting it right, particularly the false teachers who were getting it wrong. That's why Paul wanted Timothy there to, to stop those people from teaching any different doctrine. He says in verse 4, he left him there with this charge so that certain persons would not devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now notice that phrase, the stewardship from God. Now that's a that's not the kind of phrase we use a lot when we're describing things around the house. All right, but let me just uh, clue you in a little bit on what's going on there. Paul's saying there's a certain way that God wants us to do things in the church, right? What we believe, what we do, and what we practice. God has given us a stewardship. It works by faith. The church is supposed to move forward, not by any means necessary, but by the ways that God has lined up. And Paul said, there's some folks who aren't doing it that way. Stop them, Timothy. He says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Okay, the point of our preaching, the point of our ministry, why we're here from, from a human perspective, the aim of our charge is love. We're trying to cultivate in the people of God at our church love. That's the point. When we leave here Sunday after Sunday, there should be growing in your heart love for God and love for your neighbor. That's the aim of our charge, right? So stop those who are doing it wrong. Remember, here's the main point, love. And what kind of love? He says in verse 5, a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We'll talk more about those in just a moment. He says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they're saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. What a strange phrase. That's the last verse of the passage we'll consider today, but he describes the false teachers as, as number one, they're wrong, and yet they're really confident. Okay, so, so they seem like they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. We want to get it right. Brothers and sisters here at our church, where, right, where, where we have a role to play, where we have something to add, where we have a say, we want to get it right. We don't want to do it wrong. We want to get it right. And for that, I think Paul will give three main ideas in this passage. This is what I share with you this morning as the main points of my outline. How do we get it right, okay? Number one, if you're taking notes today, here's number one. Notice with me the importance of sound doctrine. The importance of sound doctrine. There's a certain urgency with which Paul speaks of the need for sound doctrine. He urges Timothy to remain. He gives him a charge. The word that's used there, he charged him to stay at Ephesus and confront the false teachers. That's a military term for command from authority to an inferior. I command you there. Stop them from teaching any different doctor, uh, doctrines. There is, brothers and sisters, a correct way to interpret the Bible and to construe the biblical message into the Christian life, right? As individuals, as a church collectively, there are right ways of doing that. We want to get the right ways, and there are wrong ways of doing that. And they've existed as long as there have been a church, right ways and wrong ways. Note also that maintaining sound doctrine was really the occasion for Paul's letter altogether. 16 different times in this short little letter, Paul will speak to Timothy about the false teachers. It just comes up over and over again. And when he writes him a second letter, right? Second Timothy, he addresses false teaching in that letter just the same. So we want to maintain the importance of sound doctrine. Well, what sound doctrine? How do we know? The phrase itself simply means this. Sound means healthy. Doctrine refers to our teaching, right? What we believe, what the teachers in our church, from me as the pastor, the primary teacher, all the way down through all of our leaders, whether they have a title such as Sunday school teacher or they lead a, uh, an occasional Bible study or they work with children, what we communicate to people when we open our mouths through the services, the ministries and the programs of this church, we want it to be sound doctrine, healthy teaching. So how do we know whether it is that? Well, let me give you three features of sound doctrine in God's Word. Number one, it's biblical. Sound doctrine is biblical. Brothers and sisters, we don't believe the things we believe just because, well, that's kind of what we've always believed. We believe them because the Bible teaches them. We are a people of the book. The Bible is our book. It's not written in an undecipherable code. It's written with letters and words we can understand and study and grasp and communicate. Sound doctrine is biblical doctrine. We're in 1 Timothy 1. It won't take you long to flip over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. All right, we're making the point that sound doctrine is biblical. Here's the problem. A lot of times we just assume what we think about stuff is biblical. Well, it might be. Let's see what the Bible says. It might not be. Just because you believe it doesn't mean it's right. Just because we like it or we have developed ministries around it 
doesn't mean it's healthy. We got to test it by the standard, and the standard is the Bible. You're there with me in 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse, uh, uh, we'll start in verse 15, and we'll read a little, and I'll just offer a few comments as I see fit. Look with me at uh, verse 15. Paul is again speaking to Timothy. He says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, see, this early in the history of the church, while the books of the New Testament are still being written, God's people understood we have a book, the Bible, the sacred writings. Timothy was acquainted with them, and Paul says of them that they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Right? The Bible's how we get saved. We wouldn't know that Jesus is our Savior if the Bible hadn't told us that. Now, look at verse 16, one of the most amazing statements in all the Bible about the Bible. Verse 16 says, all Scripture is breathed out by God breathed out by God. Where do we get the Bible? It comes from God. Breathed out. Theonoustos. It's a Greek word. It's a compound word for God and expired. That is breathed out. Biblical scholars have not been able to find this particular Greek word in any other ancient Greek document ever. Only here. Which leads most of them to conclude Paul made this word up. Not that it's untrue, but he was at a loss for how to describe exactly what the Bible was and how we got it. And so he said, let me tell you where the Bible came from. God breathed it out. The same God who breathed life into the nostrils of Adam and made him a living being breathed out. And through that inspiration, we have received the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And notice this, it is profitable. That means it's good for something. All scripture is good for something. And what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm going to keep reading because this is a really cool pastor of scripture. Matter of fact, beginning in chapter four, this was the pastor of scripture my pastor preached over me when I was ordained in the gospel ministry many years ago. He said in verse number one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's what you're to do, old man of God. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What's the difference between in season and out of season? Okay, in season means you're, you're harvesting right? When times are good, when, when the offering plate's full, when the baptistry's got fresh water in it, right? And out of season, you preach that word. Whether it's time to reap a harvest or, or, or the ground seems dormant, you preach that word. For he, he, says, he says also, be ready in season and out of season and use that word this way. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do it with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming let me add parenthetically and is now here okay the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching remember we're talking about the importance of sound doctrine healthy 
teaching. We don't want healthy teaching. We want junk food teaching. That's what a lot of people want. Right? I want it to taste good. I want it to be crunchy. I want it to satisfy me right away like a bag of Cheetos. But God says, no, I want to serve you up a nourishing, home-cooked meal. Sound teaching. The time is coming when people won't endure that, but they will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is our source of sound doctrine, and it is our standard, right? That's where we get our teaching from. It's also the measuring rule by which we judge all teaching. The Bible. The Bible is our book. Let me tell you, a lot of times we're tempted to, to see a passage of Scripture like this. Hey, there's going to come a, t- a day when everybody has itching ears. And it's easy for people like us, the people who don't mind getting up on Sunday morning coming to church, it's easy for us to think, oh, the ones that have the itching ears are people who don't come to church. They don't have itching ears. They don't care. They're not listening at all. The itching ears warning is for us. They don't care what we're teaching in here, right? The importance of sound doctrine is for us. We need the healthy teaching. We don't just have it by way of, you know, proximity or osmosis from having been in a pew for so long. We need healthy teaching. We do not bend the Bible to fit ourselves. We bend ourselves to fit the Bible. And let me add one other thing that's so important in our day and age. If you go back in time, 75 years, okay? It was culturally much more acceptable that the, the, the teaching of the Bible on social issues especially. Today, it's not in vogue, right? To adhere to what the Bible teaches us on certain social issues is not cool anymore. Brothers and sisters, we should not be embarrassed about what our Bibles say. Now, at the same time, we don't take our Bibles and go around smacking people with them and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. The Bible says this. Again, they're not listening. They don't have ears at all for what this book has to say. But we, are, we ought not to be embarrassed. And so if you ever find yourself confronting social issues of our day and you think, well, I know what the Bible says, but I know what I see on TV and what some of my friends think. I'm just not really sure. I'm kind of embarrassed to say what I think on this issue. We don't have any reasons to be embarrassed by what God has said. That's the importance of sound doctrine. Now, what is sound doctrine? It's biblical. Number two, it's reasonable. It's not just biblical. It's reasonable, which is to say it can be shown or it can be demonstrated. It's not just, hey, here's what I think, throw a Bible verse reference on it and walk away. No, we talk about it. We reason. We appeal to people's minds and their hearts. It's not just take my word for it. It's not just, well, that's what we've always thought. It's not speculative. It's reasonable. Reasonable. Listen to what happens in Acts chapter 17. Listen to the story about the Apostle Paul. Remember, the same Paul who wrote these letters we've read from today, First and Second Timothy. In Acts chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, God's Word says that Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with people from the Scriptures. Okay, so we didn't just walk in and, and say to a bunch of lost people, here's what the Bible says, you can take it or leave it, I don't care but we're going to stand on the word. No, he reasoned with them. 
He talked with them. He just shared with people, here's what I read in the Bible. Here's what I think it means. Here are the reasons why. And he reasoned with them. Sound doctrine, healthy teaching is biblical and reasonable. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3 goes on to say, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Jesus to die. Sound doctrine is reasonable. One last thing I'll say about sound doctrine. We're talking about its importance this morning. It's biblical. It's reasonable. It's also this, and this is a really big theme about true versus false teaching in Paul's letters to Timothy. It's fruitful. Sound doctrine bears fruit. When Jesus spoke about false teachers in Matthew 7, here's what he concluded. You'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. Healthy teaching reaps a harvest of healthy men and women of God. Sound doctrine, good Bible teaching, and good preaching. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, Jesus said. Who? The teachers. The good versus the bad teacher. You'll know them by their fruits. Jude, verse 12, speaks of false teachers this way. It calls them waterless clouds. What an image. You know, here recently we've gotten quite a bit of rain, but, you know, a week or so ago we really needed some rain. You walk out in your yard and it's crunchy everywhere you step, right? And you see a big rainstorm coming and you think, oh, yes, this is it. It's going to be so good for, for everyone's yards, for all of our farmers. And the rain just passes right over us, not a drop. The Bible says that's a false teacher. It holds out hope. looks good. You might even hear it and it sounds good. Lightning, thunder, but no rain. Sound doctrine is fruitful. So let me ask this question and, uh, and we'll move on. How can you be biblical and reasonable and fruitful in your life? Right? How can you demonstrate sound doctrine is important to you? A couple of ways. Number one, read your Bible. Let me say that again. Read your Bible. If you're here this morning and you say, I believe in the importance of sound doctrine, but you don't ever read your Bible, let me tell you, there's a contradiction in your life. Okay, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or make you feel like a loser, but, 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 but if sound doctrine truly is important to you, don't take my word for it. You got a brain. You got a Bible. If you know Jesus, you've got his Holy Spirit. Read the Bible. I taught our middle school Sunday school class this morning. Our teachers are down at Legoland or somewhere like that. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll be glad to fill in for you. And um, I asked, the, 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 there was five of them in there this morning. I said, have any of you ever read your Bibles before? And uh, they, they looked at me like, well, what's he mean here? I said, I don't mean like at church or in Sunday school when your teacher calls on you to pray. I mean like at your house. You know, if you didn't have anything else to do and you just read your Bible. And out of five, three of them said yes. The other two didn't really respond. So maybe they were just seeing where I was going. I don't know. But uh, they said, yeah, yeah, I've read it. And so I said, what'd you read? And one of the young ladies said, I read Ruth. Good, good. And another one of the young ladies said, I read Psalms. And so I asked the, the Psalm one. I said, well, what happened when you read it? You're going to love this. What happened when you read it? She said, I fell asleep. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay. All right, well, let's keep working here. And she said, no, but that's what I was doing. I was trying to get to bed. And it, 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 it made me feel like she was having a rough day. 
and she knew she could find some comfort. Any of you ever slept with the Bible under your pillow or very near to you? Because in some way it just felt like it represented God's presence to you. It's not, okay? The Bible is not God, but it is his word. And he did breathe it out. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's been some rough nights when God's word was right there by my pillow. I don't read it in my sleep, but it's there. And it brings a comfort to me. Read your Bible. All right, what else can you do to emphasize sound doctrine in your life? Go to a church where the pastor preaches and teaches the word of God. That's how we get the scriptures in our life. Take advantage of things like Sunday school, where every single week you're able to study God's word, but not in this form. See, here you just sit and I do all the talking. In Sunday school, you get to hear from, from your brothers and sisters here in the church family. You get to add in your own two cents. And, and it's a totally different experience. Both are, are, are really crucial. It's important that we do things like that. And I'd also say, um, read good Christian books if you can. Wonderful ways to, to emphasize sound doctrine in your life. Um, let me share with you a second theme that we see in this passage. Not only the importance of sound doctrine, but also the purpose of Christian preaching. Now, these two are, are similar. Uh, they're very related. But we notice in our passage, beginning in verse number 4, Paul says, we're back in 1 Timothy 1 now, Paul says some important things about what the aim of our preaching and our teaching is, okay? What the purpose of it is. And I think this is really important for us to think about from time to time. Of course, it's important for me to think about because I'm a preacher, but it's also important for God's people to think about. All right, when a man gets in that pulpit, opens the Bible and starts talking, what is he supposed to be doing, right? Is he just supposed to be getting us excited? Is he just supposed to try to get people to walk the aisle? Is he just supposed to fill our head with important information and, and Bible lessons and things like that? What is he supposed to be doing? I think in verse 4 and 5, um, we get some of that, okay? So look at me at verse 4 and 5 as we're trying to discern the purpose of our preaching. Speaking about uh, the false teachers Paul has, has prohibited here, he says they're not supposed to devote themselves just to myths and endless genealogies which, watch this, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. No, the aim of our charge is love. Paul the preacher to Timothy the younger preacher, here's the purpose, brother, it's love. You're supposed to be sharing God's word in a way that it starts a fire in their hearts. They want to love God more. They want to love other people better. The aim of our charge is, is love. He'll say some other things. Let me just condense all that he says there into three statements, okay? The purpose of Christian preaching, I'll give you all three of these real quick. Number one, it's to move forward with the people of God. Move forward. Number two, it's to produce love. And number three, it's to change lives. That's the purpose of our preaching, to move forward. Where did I get that idea? Well, you notice that phrase there at the end of verse four, right? We're supposed to be utilizing the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, when I read 1 Timothy recently in my daily reading, I was reading from the NIV. Notice the way the NIV translates that phrase. It says, "Such this is the second half of verse 4, such things promote speculations rather than advancing God's work. Okay, so if the preacher gets up in front of the church, 
hoops, hollers, dances, does whatever you want him to do, and everybody just loves and gets real excited, but the church doesn't move forward, the purpose has not been fulfilled. Right? We're not here to hunker down in hopes that we won't get into the world on us. We're here to storm the gates of hell uh, against which the gates of hell, the, the, the Jesus says about his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's not defensive language. That's language of advance, right? Where do we encounter the gates? We encounter them when we're heading out there after them. The purpose of good Christian preaching is to help God's people move forward. Good Christian preaching is not just a pep rally. But pep rallies can be pretty fun, right? You get up there, your, your team plays its song, you see all your favorite team members, you get real excited, we're going to win. But the purpose of preaching is more than a pep rally. Preaching is not meant to be an echo chamber where we just hear all the things we already like. It's a place where God's Holy Spirit, using the man of God, touches people's hearts and helps them to move forward. Good preaching doesn't just save us. It also moves us forward in our lives with God and it will continue to do so if we do it right until the day we die. No one has arrived yet. We're still on the way. This is a journey, brothers and sisters, and we got to keep moving forward in our journey. If we're ever tempted to think, you know, the preaching time is just where we hear from the word, but you know, I've already, had, I've already heard all that. I've never heard anybody say that, but I've felt that before from people. Ah, the preach is not that important. I heard of someone say, I have a family member who was on a search committee. And their different church, different town, but their search committee, their pastor search committee chairman, they were having trouble finding the right candidate. And the guy eventually said, I don't care if we have to find a dog and hang a tape player around his neck and just play some old sermons. We got to find somebody. Well, at least he came on out and said the way a lot of people feel already. That's not the purpose. Here's what God's word says. Hebrews 4 verse 12 the Word of God is alive. It is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, even discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And brother and sister, if you think sitting in church is just a pep rally or a place where you get your comfort stroked, listen to this next part, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This speaks of our preaching. When we encounter the word of God, we are not the same. We must seek covering. That covering comes not from ourselves or our traditions, certainly not from our comfort zones. It comes from God. He's the provider. The purpose of Christian preaching is to move forward. Secondly, we can say this. The purpose of our preaching is to produce love really the heart of this passage. I've, I've shared with you a paragraph or so, verses three to seven. The heart we find in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. Paul would write elsewhere, and so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, 
but the greatest is love. The greatest act that's ever been done was an act of love. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. Jesus was once asked by some people who were really not supporters of his, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me say finally, the purpose of our preaching is to change lives, to help us move forward, to produce love, but ultimately the purpose of our preaching is to change lives. Notice uh, in verse 5, when we read that great aim of our charge is love, notice what kind of love. It's love that issues from, which is to say a love that springs out of three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Where you see those three things, you see somebody that Jesus has made new. Where you see those three things, you see somebody that God's got his hand on their life. What do those things represent? Pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Let me tell you what it represents. It represents change in our lives. Transformation. A pure heart is only possible when we're saved, when we're led by the Spirit, not by the flesh or selfish motives. A good conscience means not only that no longer are we toting our own guilt, burdened and shackled by the sins that we feel that we've done wrong, but a good conscience also means we're sensitive to God. When we don't listen to Him, Every time we tell him no, it becomes a little harder to hear his voice because our conscience is less sensitive. I remember as a teenage boy when I learned the amazing power of a guitar. We got a few guitar players in the room. Maybe you remember how old you were or, or what you were doing when you learned to play the guitar. I remember exactly where I was. Um, I was in Pierce County, Georgia. I was a freshman in high school. It was Thanksgiving Day, which means I was with all my cousins. And one of them had just started playing the guitar. And he said, Deke, let me show you this. And he showed me a little lick that was really easy to play. He said, I'm going to play some chords, and you play this sound over the top of it. It was Tuesday's Gone by Leonard Skinner. Forgive me for the rock and roll reference, okay? Uh, some of you may want to thank me for that. And I'll never forget the feeling that pulsed through me. He played that for, I think it was an A chord. And I said, I'm not going to hum it for you. I feel ridiculous. Lauren's like, thank you. But I remember playing that little riff. If you've heard the song, you know how it opens. And I played it and I thought, I can do this. I can do this. And let me tell you, I was hooked. And I have been ever, ever since. Well, I learned very quickly, you can't play that guitar long before the tips of your fingers really start to get red and raw and blistered. And so the more you practice the harder your fingertips get. And it gets to where you can tap them on a table and it's like, because you've built up these calluses. Let me tell you the way our lives with God works. Every time we say no to God, 
we get a little callous over our heart. Calluses are good when you're a guitar player. Not good when you're a child of God. And eventually, because of the hardness of our heart that's been produced by sin and disobedience and what seems like slow, quiet, personal rebellion, our hearts are no longer sensitive to the Lord. Paul says the purpose of good preaching here is a good conscience, a conscience that works. Let me tell you when I know I've heard good preaching. It's not when I hear it and I go, I'm so glad he said that because everyone else is wrong, but this guy, at least he's willing to say it. I mean, sometimes that can be good. It's not just when I hear a story and I'm choking back tears. It's not just when I hear a preacher and he's really funny. When I've heard good preaching, it's because God has touched my heart and and he's shown me, Deke, this is where I want to work in your life, right here. And he touches it. And if our hearts are sensitive, we feel that. And that's very much a part, one of the most important parts of what good Christian preaching is, that we would have a good conscience and a sincere faith, which just is just to say we're not hypocrites. That's all that means. Love that issues forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, a sincere faith. I want to close by asking you these three questions. I had another point this morning, but I'm going to ditch it here at the end. I want to ask you these questions. Where is God working in your life? Will you answer that in your heart right now? Just take a moment. As we sort of move from a preaching time to a time where we can respond, where is God working in your life? Where is he working, brother? Where is he working, sister? What comes to mind when you think of that? And what are you doing in response? If you're here this morning and there's sin in your life, and you you have trouble answering the question, where is God working in my life? And all you can think of, well, I don't guess he really is a whole lot. I got this thing in my life that I've just allowed to be there. It's a sin, and I've just allowed. That's where he's working, right there. You need to take that sin. You just need to give it to Jesus. In your heart, in your mind, as you can imagine it, you need to lay it at the foot of the cross. You can't do that with arrogance. There's no such thing as a sensitive child of God walking with swagger. It's impossible to strut while you're carrying your cross. Jesus said, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so if we follow Jesus, there's only one way to do it, and that's humbly. If you've got sin in your life today, here's your response. God, I give you this sin. Will you forgive me? Jesus died on the cross just so he could say yes to you today. Yes, yes, I will forgive you. Yes, it doesn't matter what it is. God's answer is yes. Every heart who comes to God in repentance will get a yes because Jesus loves you.
He gave his life for you. Will you bow your heads with me? As we close our sermon with a time of invitation, here's what I'm inviting you to today. I want to invite you to come and kneel at this altar. Spend some moments in prayer. Just respond to where God is working in your heart. Give it to God. Say, yes, God, I feel you working here. I give you that. Humble yourself before him. If you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to Jesus, I want to tell you, Jesus loves you. That's why he died on the cross for you. Today, you can receive his salvation by faith. Trust in him. If you want to give your heart to Jesus today, during our invitation, won't you come see me? I'll be standing down front here in just a moment. Just come see me. We'll talk to you. Talk about what God's doing in your life. Pray with you. It'd be a wonderful, wonderful day if we saw somebody saved this morning. Father, we ask for your blessing now in this time of response. Holy Spirit, would you move? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand with me.